The scripture reading for today is from Mark 9, 2 to 29, which is in page 493 in your Bibles. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to start off this morning by asking a question. Do you ever feel weak? You know what? We're going to, I'm going to need more help than this today, guys. 
Let me ask you a question. You're welcome to respond. Do you ever feel weak? Yeah, right? We feel weak. It is the first Sunday of 2018. This is, I think we're still all in resolution mode. And, And aren't resolutions about weakness? Isn't that kind of the point? We see our inadequacy. At the beginning of the year, we look at all the ways that we fall short and we want to be better. We say, well, I'm going to read more this year. I'm going to budget a little better. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to be more present in my home. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he told me that uh, because of how distracted he is at home, he was going to take all screens out of his life for 2018. All phones, all tablets, all computers, all televisions. He was going to completely cut it all out. And I I called him last week. He gave up before he even started. (laughs) He, he He couldn't even think about making it for one day. Because we're weak. And this passage is about weakness. But this passage is showing us that maybe that weakness that we all feel, maybe that weakness isn't such a bad thing. In fact, what I think we're going to learn here is that weakness, approached the right way, is the path to glory. Weakness is the path to glory. And so we're going to look at this story, and we're going to see how Mark is trying to show us that idea through two very different scenes that make up the same story. First, we're going to see the strength of Jesus on the top of this mountain. And then we're going to see the weakness of the world standing at the foot of the mountain. So we'll look at the strength of Jesus on the top, the weakness of the world at the bottom, and then at the end, we're going to talk about how weakness can lead to glory. So let's first talk about the strength on the top of the mountain. Now, if you didn't notice, uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark today. We have not been in Mark for a long time. Uh, We studied the first half of this book last January, and we went up to Easter and we took a break. If you don't know, Mark is one of four Gospels. The Gospels are books that tell the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We always try to spend some significant time there during the year. Um, And last year we did the first half of this book where we talked about who is Jesus. That was the title of our series. And we kept looking at different portrayals of him and different... uh, ways to understand him. But finally on Easter, we finished that series with Mark, uh, with Peter, making this big profession. He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. Peter got the answer right. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. He was the prophesied anointed one. He was the king coming to save the world. That was the answer to the first half. Now, as we go into the second half of this book, we're going to be asking a different question. What did Jesus come to do? It's a nice little visual aid for you. (laughs) What did Jesus come to do? Um, As soon as we start thinking about this, you find out that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that everyone expected. He isn't the Christ. Uh, He didn't look like everyone thought he was going to look. They were expecting dominance. The world was expecting this awesome and powerful king. And I was trying to think of like a good illustration for this, but for some reason, the only thing I could think of was LeBron James. 
<laughs> and I kept thinking of that moment in the NBA Finals a couple years ago. Did you watch it when he was playing against Golden State? And uh, Andre Iguodala got the ball, and he's going down the court, and LeBron like runs the entire course of the court, jumps up, and slams the ball against the backboard. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Go look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's like the most incredible play I've ever seen. That's dominance, right? People were expecting dominance from the Messiah. They were expecting him to shut down and conquer Rome. They were expecting him to, to bring in God's administration and give them sweet positions within it. But if you remember, just as soon as Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus follows up with this, he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's our setting as we head into Mark chapter 9. These guys are totally confused. They know that the Christ is supposed to be this king, that he's supposed to be this dominant figure. But how could he die? How could he be weak? And so it's in the midst of that confusion, it's in the midst of that uncertainty about Jesus, that Jesus takes three of his disciples. He takes Peter, he takes James, and he takes John, and he walks them up to the top of the mountain. And if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up. It's page 493. What happens at the top of this mountain is incredible. It's hard to describe it with words, but here's what... Scripture tells us in verse 3, he was transfigured before them, and his glory became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And he appeared to them with Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. In verse 7, it says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In this moment, Jesus shows them the fullness of his glory. Now, if you are a skeptic here in this room, I get it. This is one of those passages that seems totally out there. This seems totally crazy. And it is. But, spoiler alert, right? Here's the thing. Christianity, we believe that Jesus was actually God. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to earth, and this story is one of the reasons why we believe that. Now, we're going to spend more time talking about that uh, over the weeks and months as we study Mark, but I just, you need to know right at the outset that Mark assumes that there is a spiritual reality to the universe. Mark assumes what statistics say still two-thirds of America believes that the world is not just what we can see, but there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual component to it. And in this moment, this scene that's commonly called the transfiguration, Jesus is pulling back the veil. Jesus is showing us the spiritual reality of who he is. And all of a sudden, in this moment, he is standing there with Moses. He's standing there with Elijah. Moses, the, the guy who we just studied all through Deuteronomy, the one who brought the law, 
to Israel. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He's standing there in their presence, and then this big cloud comes and covers them. And, and guys, this isn't just like some random fog. This isn't a random detail that Mark decided to throw in. This is the glory cloud. This is the cloud of God's presence that you see all over the Old Testament. In Exodus, do you remember there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day? Or the end of Exodus, they built the tabernacle and it says that this cloud descended upon it so that none of the priests could enter. Or when Solomon builds his temple, it says that the, the presence of the Lord came down as a cloud and no one could go inside. That's the cloud we're talking about. It represented God's presence among his people. But maybe most significantly, the last time anyone heard from that cloud was in Ezekiel. One of those big prophetic books in the Old Testament. And in that book, Ezekiel, he has this vision of that cloud leaving the temple. This symbolic moment saying that Israel had broken faith with God and his presence was no longer among them. That was 600 years before this night. And here it is again. What a shock. Can you imagine? Can you imagine standing on the top of that mountain? How, how crazy that would be? How alarming that would feel? It tells us that these guys were terrified in the middle of that. Have you ever been terrified? Do you know what it feels like to be terrified? When I was a kid, it was one of my duties, one of my chores was taking out the trash. And my dad thought it was really funny to remind me to take out the trash and then to go outside and hide in the dark by the trash cans. And, you know, he probably did this, I don't know, 75% of the time. Um, but occasionally, every now and then, he would really get me. And I would come around the corner and he would grab my leg and I would just lose control, like scream. Have you ever been just scared? Like that moment when the adrenaline is just like rushing through your body? You can't do anything. You just scream. You act like an idiot. These guys are terrified. They're shocked. But why? Why are these guys terrified? Well, it's because there is a well-known history that when people stand in the presence of God, it doesn't go well. God tells Moses in Exodus, you can't stand in my presence or you will die. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet, he has this vision, just a vision of God's holiness. And his immediate response is, woe is me, I am lost. He says, I'm going to die if I stand here before God shows up and forgives him of his sins. But somehow, these terrified three guys are able to stand in the presence of God and they are fine. They're fine. Nothing happens to them. So Peter starts to babble. Tells us in verse 5. Um, and Peter says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. But God uh, speaks in this moment. See, Peter lets us know in his babbling that he still doesn't have a clue what's going on. In his mind, he has just moved Jesus up a few notches, right? 
He has put Jesus on the highest plan he could think of. He is putting Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah now. He said, I'm going to build three tents, one for each of you. And you guys, because obviously Jesus is right up there. He's right up there with Moses. He's right up there with Elijah. But then all of a sudden, God from the glory cloud says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's the point. That's the point of this whole scene. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh come into the world. Amen. So, on the top of this mountain, we see Jesus in all his glory, in all his power, in all his majesty, and in all his strength. We see the strength of Jesus on the mountaintop. That's scene number one. Now we go to scene number two. The weakness at the foot of this mountain. As you read the text, you can feel that descent. You can feel this movement from glory and strength to brokenness and weakness. The passage tells us that in an instant, in a moment, as quickly as it all started, it's over. And now these three guys are just standing there with Jesus. This ordinary looking guy. This carpenter's son. And they start to head down the mountain. And of course they have all sorts of questions. They're asking him tons of questions. They, they are so confused. They don't really know what's going on. But just as soon as they get to the bottom of this hill, they enter into chaos. It says there's a huge crowd waiting at the bottom. A noisy crowd. An arguing crowd, even. They get down to the disciples who weren't with them, and it turns out that these religious leaders, these scribes, are arguing with the other disciples. And what are they arguing about? Well, they're arguing because the remaining disciples had been trying to heal this boy who was possessed by a demon, and they failed. They're not able to do it. It's actually a very dramatic scene. Uh, the painter, uh, Raphael, has a, a painting of this, his last painting, actually. It's called The Transfiguration. And it, it shows this beautifully, that Jesus is being transfigured at the top, and at the bottom of the mountain, it shows all this chaos around, the, 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 the possessed son and the, the, his father asking the questions. In verse 17, it tells us, uh, they asked, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, said, teacher, this is the father, he said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. I want you to try to picture just how horrible this would have been for the father. Just how violent this situation is. This kid writhing and foaming. How desperate he must have felt. But before Jesus acts on that, before Jesus does anything, he lets out this lament. He says in verse 19, O faithless generation, 
How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Who is he talking to? Who is Jesus talking to when he says, you faithless generation? He's not speaking to that dad. I don't know if you realize that. He's talking to his disciples. And really, in talking to his disciples, he is talking to the church. He's talking to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to the people in this room. Everybody here who would call yourself a Christian. Because we find ourselves in this exact same situation. Okay, maybe not this exact same situation, right? We probably aren't consumed with uh, performing exorcisms necessarily. That may not be like in your your typical weekly routine. But uh, this is less about the activity. This is less about the exorcism and more about their attitude towards it. Jesus tells us, Jesus tells the disciples that they have a faith problem. And that problem has nothing to do with performing exorcisms. In fact, they were pretty confident that they could perform this exorcism. Do you notice that? Verse 29, uh, I liked the way that Jennifer read it when they kind of secretly whisper, like, why couldn't we do it? (laughs) They thought they could. They expected that they were going to be able to perform this exorcism, no problem. And Jesus says, this kind cannot uh, come out by anything but prayer. When Jesus says that, when he says only prayer, he's pointing out something that I hope you find a little surprising. He's, he's saying, well, did you pray? And they, they say, uh, no, no, we didn't. They thought they could do it on their own. And doesn't that seem crazy? Doesn't that seem almost comical? Especially in the context, right, where we just saw, on the one hand, this Jesus who is the embodiment of the glory of God with the law and the prophets in submission to him, the holy God in the flesh. And then, on the other hand, we have these poor, uneducated nobodies, these fishermen, and they look at Jesus and his glory and in his promises and in his claims, and they look at themselves and then they say, I can handle this. I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'll, just, I'll, I'll take care of this on my own. This is no problem. You guys just stand back. If that's not a picture of the church today, then I don't know what is. In the church, we are a people who know the truth about Jesus. We know about the transfiguration. We've heard about it so many times that it barely registers as we read through it. I'm not telling you anything new. You've you've heard this stuff. You know about the power of Jesus. You know about the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are so quick to wake up in the morning, to look at the enormous challenges that we face, and say, now I got this. To, instead of looking at Jesus, we look at ourselves and we say, I can handle this on my own. Right? When we think about doing an exorcism without praying, we think, that's bonkers, right? <laughs> Who would try to do an exorcism without praying? I, I've never tried one myself, but I've seen it in the movies, right? you got to pray. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like an impossible thing to try to take on solo. But don't we do the same thing? 
Don't we take on plenty of things that are far more complicated? Plenty of things that are far more consuming without giving Jesus a second thought. I mean, what about raising your children? What about caring for sick family members? What about just accomplishing the day's work that's ahead of you? What about finding work? What about trying to keep yourself healthy? What about all these self-improvement goals you may have just made? What about navigating the stress of marriage or dating or, or even just being part of a family? Just like these disciples, we look at our lives, these lives that we have very little control over, and we say, I've got this. I can handle this on my own. Even though Scripture tells us that we are, as Christians, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, even though we have access to the living God, we say, well, you know, I'm pretty busy. I'm just going to take this from here. I don't have time to, to deal with God right now. I'm just going to do this on my own. We're self-reliant people, is what I'm saying. We are self-reliant people, and it shows. It shows in our ineffectiveness. Why don't you see more of Christ's power in your life? Well, did you pray? No. Why don't you see more of Christ's power in your life? We are a self-reliant people, and it shows. It shows in our... Uh, in our uh, in effectiveness, but it also, it shows in our hopelessness. It shows in our confusion. It shows in the way that we feel disconnected and numb towards God. It shows in our faithlessness. It shows in the way that we spend our time and our energy. What other reason could there be for the fact that you have seen every episode of your favorite television show two or three times, but you've never read through the Bible once? What else reason would there be but self-reliance that, that the very first thing you cut out of your day when it gets busy is prayer? What else if it were not that we assume we can do it on our own? And we do. Have mercy. We do. Uh, as I was reading this, I was reminded of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus, he's speaking to the church and he diagnoses them with this problem. He says, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. And I want to tell you, this isn't just a word for Christians. That's not only a truth for the church. In fact, our failure to see our need, our failure to see our weakness is probably the greatest sin in the world. The root goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve when they said, they heard the serpent and said, yeah, yeah, why shouldn't I be like God? Yeah, I will eat this fruit so I can be as equal because I can take it from here. So here we see, at the bottom of this mountain, the results of our self-reliance. 
You see the picture? Can you imagine it? Chaos, confusion, sickness, death, weakness, doubt, and desperation. We are Satan's punching bags when we try to live our lives in our own strength. But there is one person who stands out in this story. Do you notice him? Do you see it? It's that father. We saw Christ's strength. We saw him standing at the mountaintop in all of his power. And then we see all the weakness that is at the foot. But there is this one person that Mark draws out of the picture. And he shows us that in the midst of this weakness, there is a path to glory. There is a way that weakness can lead us to glory. So let's look at verse 21. So Jesus, he spoke to this father and he says, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. And it has cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. You don't have to be a parent to understand this, right? You don't have to be a parent to, to feel that father's desperation, to feel his pain. He, he has brought this man to Jesus, and already his disciples have failed. And so he comes to him and he says, if you can do anything, please help us. He heard great things about Jesus. He must have. But here's how Jesus responds. He says, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. In saying those really famous words, I believe, but help my unbelief, when he says that, this guy, he stands alone in this story. There is nobody else taking the posture that this man takes because he is the only one who is willing to admit his weakness. He's the only person in this story who is willing to admit his need. Do you notice that? And Jesus asks him, do you believe, right? He says, anything is possible for those who believe. Now, who would have responded honestly to that question? How many of you? I wouldn't have. If Jesus said to me, anything's possible for, you, for those who believe, I would oh, I believe. Definitely heal him, I believe. But this guy, he knew that wasn't true. He said, I believe a little. Help me. And then what Jesus does is, is pretty incredible. He doesn't even touch him. He doesn't even touch this kid. He just speaks. And there is this explosion of redemption. You look at this picture, and, and maybe you're not surprised, right? You shouldn't be surprised. We just saw who Jesus really was. We get to read what happened at the top of the mountain. None of us should be surprised that Jesus does this. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fix the broken things. He came to free people from the power of Satan, sin, and death. That's what he is here for. And he does it, right? He does it powerfully. He does it definitively. He does it so powerfully that the crowd thinks this kid is dead. He goes from foaming and writhing to nothing. 
But Jesus grabs his hand. He lifts him up. And he's healed. Folks, I, I want to just stop for a moment. I want you to see this picture. This is a picture of what Christ can do for you when you come to him in weakness. I bet there are some of you here in this room who are on the fence about this whole Jesus thing. In fact, I know that's the case. You've heard the claims. You've listened to those promises of the gospel. You've heard people tell you that if you will turn from your self-reliance and, and trust in Christ's death and resurrection, trust in what he's done on the cross, instead of in your hard work, then, then you will be welcomed into the presence of God. You've heard that if you confess your sin and surrender your life to him, that he will forgive your sins. That he will fill you with his spirit. That he will free you from the bondage of your sin. That he will give you access to your heavenly father. You've heard all that. But you're still not sure. You want to trust him. But you're, you don't know if you're truly ready. You aren't 100% sure that he can do what he promises. If that's you... I want you to see this story is for you. You see, the Christian's salvation is not dependent on the strength of our faith, but it is dependent on the strength of our Savior. Amen? Our faith is not dependent, our salvation is not dependent on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of our Savior. That means only a little faith. Only just a little faith will save you completely. Jesus, he asks that question, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Well, the answer is on the cross. Jesus will bear with us till the very end. Jesus will stop at nothing to bring redemption for his people. All he requires of you is that you see your need. All he requires is that you come to him with your weakness, that you say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And to the rest of us, I want to close by going back to that initial question. Do you ever feel weak? Of course you do. If you are a human being, you feel weak. Because you are. We are weak. You do not have the strength to do this life on your own. And so I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you this morning. At the beginning of this year, don't be like the fools at the bottom of the mountain. Whatever it is in your life that is overwhelming you, Wherever it is that you find yourself struggling today, wherever you find yourself feeling crushed and oppressed, don't crack your knuckles and grit your teeth and say, I can do this. But instead, get on your knees and look up. Those obstacles that you face, hear these words of Jesus. They cannot be overcome by anything but prayer.
We, as a people, have to become aware of our weakness. We have to become a dependent people. We need to be the kind of people where we can walk into this church and where we can look at our brothers and sisters and we can say, I'm weak. Where we can get on our knees and we can pray to the Lord and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Every morning, you need to be able to get up out of your bed and wake up in weakness and say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. When I say that, I'm saying we just need to see ourselves as we really are. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, but standing under the presence and the power of this transcendent and radiant sun, surrounded by the cloud of glory with the law and the prophets in submission to him. Think about that. How would 2018 look if you lived in that truth? How would 2018 be different if this year you became a woman of prayer? If this year you became a man who was dependent upon the Spirit of God? How would our church be different? How would we be filled with power if we learned to cry out with honesty? How would your work, your school, your family life be changed? Lord, would you give us that vision? Would you show us our weakness so that we might cry out? Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We are, we are the fools at the bottom of the mountain. We have seen the truth of who you are and yet we look back at ourselves and we try to go it on our own. And we wind up depressed, despairing, disillusioned, and defeated. But that is still not too much for you. Lord, would you show us who you are? Would you reveal your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.